Broadcasting from the road in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. This is the Campus Bridge Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Thurl. This is episode 10, The Jewish Question, part two. went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome to episode 10 of the Campus Preacher on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Please visit us at crosspolitik.com, subscribe, become a member, see some of the stuff that we have going on there, including Toby's exposition of Proverbs. And next week, I will be joining those fellas, um, not really formally in any way, but I have my face set like Flint to Moscow, Idaho, and I should be up there by this weekend. And then I will be up there for April and May. And... While I'm there, I will uh, hopefully develop this podcast a little bit more and some other material working with those guys. Um, Last week was part one of the Jewish question. If you remember, I was on campus preaching and had a young Jewish guy come up to me at the end of the day and want to discuss why I believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. And so I think, um, you know, there's obviously, we could spend months and months and months, years on why Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. But I just want to give a real basic bare bones kind of uh, give you guys a direction on how we can address this issue apologetically. And so last week, I just looked at real broadly a, the Abrahamic faith, because when you go to evangelize, even the secularist, if you're in a context where you have Muslims, Christians, Jews, even the secularist is going to be like, aren't you guys all the Abrahamic faith? And so what we want to do, one of the first things we need to establish is that there's content to the Abrahamic faith. So if you're sitting there with a Jew or even a Muslim, in theory, you should be able to go back to Genesis 12 through 25 and give an exposition of the life of Abraham and see how uh, what, what is promised that a blessing will come through the nations through his seed, and that is fulfilled typologically um, when Abraham goes to offer up Isaac, which I would say is symbolic of Jesus uh, being offered up by God the Father. God the Father in the New Testament is the Abrahamic figure, and his beloved son is Jesus, whom he is offering up. And so you kind of, I would say, so ultimately that is the Abrahamic faith, and now blessings are coming to all nations, not just just to the Jews, uh, but to the Gentiles as well. Now, obviously, that could be open to various interpretations, including the idea that New Testament authors just picked up on it and kind of appropriated the Abrahamic story, but it's not necessarily true. So you you can see where there could be some, plenty of ambiguity, uh, not just a little bit, but there could be plenty of ambiguity on whether or not Jesus is, in fact, the promised seed. So is there anything more specific in the Old Testament that might give us more specificity on why and how Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah? Because a lot of a lot of places, I think we can admit, are open to interpretation. Isaiah 53, most Christians see pretty plainly are uh, fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. But even that, we could argue that, uh, you know, there's some ambiguity, and is the suffering servant a, an individual, or is he a corporate and understanding of who he is and stuff like that? So there's a lot of stuff going on there. So in this episode, what I want to do is get into a bit more specifics that I actually believe that the Old Testament predicts, with a little bit of uh, flexibility, the actual timing of the coming of the Messiah, and the New Testament announces the fulfillment of that coming. And so that's what we're going to look at in this episode. But before we get to that episode, or get into the content of that, just kind of a brief update of uh, preaching over the past week. I've uh, left California, uh, raced through the South, preached in uh, Mississippi and Tennessee. And then I, uh, right now I'm actually in Oklahoma. I was supposed to spend this week preaching in Iowa or Idaho, Indiana, 
with a pastor's college there in Bloomington, uh, Indiana. And then I was going to go over to Iowa and spend a couple days. But the weather looked horrendous, so I drove from Dayton, Ohio, to Oklahoma. Today I preached in Oklahoma, which was a very good and fruitful day. But one of the things that has stuck out over the past week is I, I feel like in many ways, many students are actually getting the argument. I was actually spending some time talking to a friend with mine tonight. Uh, about this issue is oftentimes it's funny how campuses each semester almost has on a takes on a particular character and so in 2016 the spring of 2016 when uh, North Carolina had that whole bathroom agenda bi uh, bill uh, that was kind of the dominant thing and, and campus was pretty raucous I'd show up preach obviously transgender stuff comes up people lose their minds and then uh, the fall, you had Donald Trump, but then 2017, people were a little bit subdued because it's almost like the, the lefties realized that uh, Trump beat them, and it was almost like they were a little bit brokenhearted, and so they didn't really always have the most pep and zeal in opposition to me. But then, you know, the the, the uh, resistance awakens, and 2018, there was a, a bit of uh, not only resistance to, obviously, Donald Trump, but to me as well, because in some way, shape, or form, they often want to see strong correlation between the two of us, and they always want to ask, am I supporting Donald Trump as he does this? Um, but now here we are in 2019, and I've, uh, I think I mentioned this either last week or the week before that, I've actually really, really enjoyed my time on campuses, because uh, it's, it's just been tremendously fruitful. I feel like almost every time I go out, I'm, I'm having real substance with people and getting places, and wh one of the things that has stood out is how quickly the students kind of acquiesce to the arguments many times. And even on things that are usually pretty touchy. So over the past year, part of how I would use to get a crowd is I would uh, push the antithesis between male and female. And it, that would kind of tie into the gender thing. And then you get into these discussions and that would kind of push it. Whereas now I feel like a lot of people are just grasping the reality that we all know there's male and female. Now, obviously, it's, it's just this semester that seems to be highlighted. And so I'll be kind of curious to see long term. Uh, where this goes, but it's it's, it's pretty fascinating to me uh, how quickly it seems like people are grasping the need for male and female, and women are actually free when they can be female, and men are actually free when they're free to be males, and when females want to be males, that's not actually freedom, or males trying to be females, that's not actually freedom. And trying to lay that out a little bit for them, I've been fairly impressed with the way uh, that they've responded. But the other thing that has stood out to me, and I, and I think is very practical for you as well, that when you go to do evangelism, you'll often interact with people who said, oh, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore. And you know, I used to kind of have one tack that I would go, and one, or one way or the other, and you'd try to maybe ask a few questions and uh, get at things. Uh, but I, what I've done more recently, I've kind of found that it kind of gives people pause, and I think of this one girl particularly who kind of stops, looked me in the eye, and it was almost like she didn't want to answer that question. But today I actually had a girl who answered the question very affirmatively in the negative. Is that even right? Very negatively? Affirmatively? Whatever. Uh, so, But it, what I've asked them is, uh, so you used to be a Christian, and you're not anymore. And when they say yes, I will just point blank ask them, so you, do you no longer believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And I think this young lady two weeks ago who really just stopped in her tracks and she did not want to say no and to be honest with you I can't remember what her answer was at this point because I remember just think I remember just the, her looking me in the eye almost like pausing like almost like I don't want to answer no to that question whereas a lady today who when I asked her that question she was very 
uh, affirmative and that no, he did not rise from the dead. Uh, so that was kind of surprising. And the other thing, also very practically, is as I interact with people, I sometimes I'll ask them if they've been baptized and then kind of evangelize to them through their baptism as well if they no longer claim to be a Christian. So you have a lot of uh, avenues that you can use to bring up spiritual conversations and get in more depth in what the gospel is. And even if you have a little bit of a conversation with somebody who claims in some way, shape, or form that they used to be a Christian, what you need is just a little bit of boldness to ask, um, you know, so do you no longer believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And then from there, you, you can obviously have a very clear gospel conversation because you're discussing uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is obviously going to tie into his death as well and a handful of other issues. So in a very practical way, as we hope to encourage and equip you to do the work of evangelism, I think that's one way uh, that you can go about it. When discussing things uh, with somebody who claims that they're formerly a Christian, but when you're uh, what we're focused on in this episode is uh, dealing with somebody who claims to be Jewish and is challenging you with respect to how can Jesus uh, be the Jewish Messiah. And the place I want to turn is if you have a Bible open up to Daniel, and uh, Daniel's one of those books where we kind of, uh, well, I knew of Daniel as a boy because the Beastie Boys had a song where they talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so I kind of knew who they, who they were. And, and then you, all, you know, most of us know about the lion's den story, and we kind of ignore the more prophetic elements because we think that they're kind of uh, you know, maybe shadowy and hard to understand. And if you've grown up in dispensational circles or like me when I was a boy, even though I wasn't a believer and I turn on the TV on uh, the weekend, you'd often have uh, somebody trying to wax eloquent on the prophetic chat charts with prophetic charts like Jack Van Imp, and he'd be like, oh, Roxella, Daniel chapter 2 is coming fulfilled. Oh, Roxella, Daniel chapter 7. And uh, I mean, the guy seemed to have a thousand verses memorized, but he never really seemed to understand what they actually meant. Um, but if you if you go to Daniel chapter 2, and the first thing I want to look at is, uh, real briefly, you don't need to turn there, but Mark uh, chapter 1 uh, Jesus is basically arrives on the scene, and it says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Where, what would they have heard in that context when they said the time is fulfilled, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What would the Jews of that day at least in part, have heard. I believe, at least in part, they would have had Daniel chapter 2 in the back of their head, because there are many passages uh, that tease out the idea of the kingdom of God, but Daniel chapter 2 is one of the most explicit. So I believe that when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they have Daniel chapter 2 in mind, and they have Daniel chapter 2 in mind for very good reason. So to try to make this as simple as possible, if you were to read the book of Daniel, it basically covers 70 years. And six, the opening verses uh, take place in the year uh, 605. So it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That would have been 605. And then in chapter 10... In verse 1, when it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Uh, so in the third year of, of King Cyrus, uh, that would have been 537, I believe. So basically 70 years. So it begins uh, with Jerusalem being besieged. In 537, 
when the last date of the book of Daniel deals with the first exiles returning. And so it covers the period of exile. So when the Israelites are in exile, uh, Yahweh, so to speak, is not ruling and reigning over them in a very practical way. And uh, he's obviously always sovereign, but they're not experiencing the kingdom of God. They're not experiencing God's presence. And so part of Daniel is telling you that a time will come when God's kingdom will be established and he will dwell amongst his people and all the implications of that. And I believe that Daniel gives us a time frame of when that's going to happen. So if you go to Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in this dream he sees uh, this figure that no none of his wise men are able to tell him what the dream means, and Daniel comes along and says, look, I can't tell you what your dream means, but there's a God in heaven who can. And so King Nebuchadnezzar says, let's have it, and uh, we're not going to read the whole passage, but Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middles and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the vision uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and Daniel basically lays out, and it's, it's a real simple image that you can remember. If you can just go down your body, you got a head of gold, you got a chest and arms of silver, you got a middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron mixed with iron and clay at your toes. So if you just go down your body, it's easy to divide it into four parts and see what, in fact, he's saying here. But it's in the uh, time of iron. Then the iron, uh, he says, um, as you looked, in verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. So what's the meaning of this vision? Even the Bible fortunately, helps us out a lot with what's going on here. Starting in verse 36, it says, uh, This was a dream. Now we will tell you, uh, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God gave the heavens and the earth, the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and to whose hand uh, he has given, uh, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making rule over all of them, you are the head of gold. So who's the head of gold? King Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty easy. Daniel tells us what the meaning is. And then he gives us a pretty clear idea of what's going to happen next with what the, uh, what the next thing is. He says in verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And then yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on to talk about how it's going to be divided. And then he says, uh, ultimately, that in verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So if you're to go down that image that Daniel has, starting with the head of gold, which the Bible tells us is King Nebuchadnezzar, then a kingdom is going to come after it. The kingdom that comes after it, you need to know a little bit of history, um, or maybe a handful of history, in order to uh, really get this. But it's it's pretty simple. Uh, the, the Babylonian Empire basically was the 6th century. Coming after the Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire in the 5th century. Following the Medo-Persian Empire was the Greek Empire. Most of you probably know who Alexander the Great is. Uh, that lasted from the 4th century to the 1st century uh, when the Roman Empire 
um, basically, you know, seceded um, the uh, Greek Empire. And so it's in that context that I believe that the vision is. And so you can hear, going back to Mark chapter 1, the words of Jesus that says, the time is fulfilled, fulfilled repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, you can, with the backdrop of this prophecy in mind, and even N.T. Wright um, points out in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, that Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter 9 uh, were often seen, or at least Daniel chapter 2, rather, uh, was interpreted as referring to the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus arrives and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the time is fulfilled, you can see how if you have Daniel chapter 2 in your head and that the kingdom of God is going to come during that empire, you can see the excitement of messianic expectation, of why there would be excitement about Jesus running around and claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, because they were expecting him to come during the Roman Empire. That's when the Jews would have expected them to come. So in your evangelism uh, with the Jews, I would go to Daniel chapter 2 and ask them, when is the Messiah coming? And according to your own prophets, according to the prophets who I agree with you, I believe that the proper understanding of the time of the coming of the Messiah would have been the Roman Empire. Now that the Roman Empire no longer exists, in what way, shape, or form is this kingdom going to come during that fourth empire? That's what you'd want to ask me. You want to put the ball in their court and make them explain Daniel chapter 2. And then what you want to do is lay out positively why you believe that Jesus in turn fulfills Daniel chapter 2 and the kingdom of God came just as Jesus said. So your point of contact in your evangelism with a Jew is going to be the scriptures. Um, the more you interact with them, the more you'll realize that what was true 2,000 years ago when Jesus says you've nullified the word of God with your traditions, that's equally or even more true today because now you have 2,000 years of tradition and you have the added animosity that Christians are coming along uh, and evangelizing Jews. So it's like an extra uh, kind of modern Judaism kind of wants to keep people away from Jesus. And so you have an extra level and an extra layer in your evangelism that you got to deal with. Um, but those would be, um, in, in some ways, you know, it, it, there's no real prescription on how to do evangelism. And here's how you do it in every instance. Uh, but I would say in, in very simple terms, you can go to uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 22 and kind of lay out the promises to Abraham. And then I would be a little bit more specific with them because I think it's, you know, obviously Genesis chapter 22, you can have a little bit of interpretation of, you know, the Christians just appropriated Genesis chapter 22 with the death of Isaac and the resurrection and applying that to Jesus. Uh, but what we can't appropriate in a simplistic manner or in a mere typology manner is the timing of the coming of the kingdom of God. And either Daniel chapter 2 teaches that the kingdom of God would come during the Roman Empire or it would come at some other time. I think the most reasonable interpretation of Daniel chapter 2 is that it came just as Daniel said it would during the Roman Empire. And next week, you know, I was going to do a three-part series, but I think one thing that needs to be brushed on a little bit further to kind of drive this home is Daniel chapter uh, 7 as well, because I was going to brush on Matthew chapter 24 and Mark uh, chapter 13, but what Jesus does there is he discusses the coming of the Son of Man. And that language is picked up from Daniel chapter 7. And if we hop up into Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, we can see a little bit more. We have a little bit more of a case of why Jesus was, in fact, the Jewish Messiah. So, as a Christian, you should have total confidence uh, that the kingdom of God has come, just as the Old Testament prophets prophesied, and Jesus fulfilled those things. 
Um, if you'd like a, maybe a little bit more information on this, you can go to my YouTube channel. I have, uh, I think it's the second one. Uh, I interacted with John MacArthur's interview on the Ben Shapiro show, and I discussed the nature of the kingdom of God because I don't believe dispensationalism uh, has an appropriate apologetic to the Jews. Because if Daniel chapter 2 prophesies that the coming of the kingdom of God would happen during the Roman Empire, um, as I'm arguing here, I think any Jew can just ask the dispensationalist, uh, where is the kingdom? And when, the can- when they come up with their alternative understanding of the kingdom of God that has been deferred and now we're in the church age, um, I would... I think the Jew could just say, well, I don't see Jesus as the Messiah then. Uh, here's what he said he was going to do. He didn't do those things. You agreed to do those things. You just believe it got deferred. So I developed that a little bit in uh, my interaction with John MacArthur's idea of the kingdom of, uh, of God, where he develops that out of uh, Matthew chapter 13, and I interact a little bit with his uh, position there. So if you want a little bit more information, we can go there. But next week, we're going to uh, briefly look at Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. Obviously, a lot more could be said about these things. Uh, but I, what I wanted to give you is just a basic time frame that the Old Testament tells you uh, when the Messiah will come, that he will come during the Roman Empire. And I believe that he did. So thank you very much for listening to the Campus Richard Podcast. I'm Keith Darrell. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, uh, feel free to tweet at me or send me a message at keith at campuspreacher.com. I'm currently in Oklahoma. It is Monday. It is Monday, and I'll be heading up to Idaho. So if you're between Oklahoma and Idaho, you'd like to meet up, uh, let me know. We can do that. So, um, yes, until next time, the Lord bless you, keep you, and do the work of evangelism. He runs on his way. There's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got. Do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs us so we're in the land.